The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening, as always, I had the privilege of sharing the company of Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and the author of the book, Work of Human Hands, the subject of our show this evening. Father, thanks for joining us again. Uh, happy to be here as usual. Well, Father, this is our third program here on the season series, Work of Human Hands, and the two previous shows we have uh, talked about the cast of characters behind the reform. We've talked about the creation of the new mass and the long and deliberate effort by many of the key modernists uh, to implement a new mass. And tonight we're going to talk about the destruction of Latin and the liturgy and why this was so key in ushering in the new religion. We're going to address the history of Latin, its place in the liturgy, why it had to go, and we're also going to address some common objections that arise from time to time about Latin in the liturgy and its place as the official language of the church in general. So, Father, uh, why don't you start us off here this evening by giving sort of a brief introduction to when Latin was adopted as the official language of the Church and why it was chosen and retained as such. Well, uh, it um, was the uh, process of development as the Church uh, spread throughout the world. When when, uh, you look back at the origins of the Church, you see, of course, the the service of the synagogue – uh, of the Palestinian synagogue being part of the um, uh, being sort of the the, the source initially uh, from uh, which was used in conjunction with uh, uh, the development of Catholic worship. The interesting thing is that uh, in the 1960s uh, we got the impression that uh, early Christians were really ardent vernacularists. That uh, you know our, our, our Lord Himself. Uh, was in favor of the vernacular, and this should be a, a motive, as it were, for uh, us changing the Catholic liturgy from Latin to the vernacular. Uh, uh, however, uh, in fact, the language of the synagogue, the synagogue service, where uh, our blessed Lord himself uh, read from Holy Scripture, according to the Gospels, we find out that the language of that, was, except for sermons, really was Hebrew. And Hebrew at the time of our Lord was not a vernacular language. It was um, sort of the, the uh, equivalent of, of Latin now. So one historian made the point that uh, if uh, vernacular, an absolute intelligible, Ability had been, uh, you know, an integral part of the 
Christian religion from the beginning by the uh, design of, of our blessed Lord, he would have denounced the practice himself. But of course he didn't. He accommodated himself to it and um, uh, preached, of course, in Aramaic, which was the language of the people. Eventually, as the church spread throughout the um, world, especially to the uh, different uh, Jews of the diaspora, the language of Christian worship became the koine, which was the, uh, koine means common, the, the common Greek that was spoken around the uh, Mediterranean. So you had uh, that element, uh, the use of, of uh, koine, so you would have this, this element of intelligibility, uh, and so that people would understand, but the, the changes came very slowly. Uh, eventually, as, as Latin replaced Greek as the uh, language of the Christian world, uh, eventually Latin started to be used in the sacred liturgy. Uh, however, there was actually a long period of uh, this shift from um, Greek, from the Koine Greek to Latin to the common language for a number of reasons, one of which scholars said was the uh, tendency in uh, liturgy uh, to respect tradition and uh, to have a reverence for the past. Um, the scholars tell us that um, Latin was finally introduced into what we would now call the canon of the Mass uh, toward the end of the 4th century. So it, it, it actually took a while. There was a the, uh, period, though, in which uh, the Mass continued to be celebrated for Latin speakers in Greek. So it was a long uh, period of, of, of shifting. Uh, and by the 4th century, though, it, it became the language of the Mass in the West. And it uh, continued there at that point, with very few exceptions, right up until the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. I remember in my days in the Novus Ordo, Father, when I first started uh, getting the idea that, hey, you know, I sort of like this whole Latin Mass thing. Uh, when I would speak about it with people, and I would mention how beautiful Latin is, they would say things like, well, you're just being a linguistic supremacist. You know, the, you know, our Lord spoke Aramaic, so if we wanted to be accurate about this, we should, you know, the Mass should be in Aramaic. So, now that, that's sort of a canard there, but uh, I, I think it's worth talking about. Why, why is that important it, it, to, to sort of debunk that myth that we should go back to the language that our Lord spoke? Well, uh, fine for instruction. You know, if they want to speak Aramaic in the Novus Ordo for instruction, certainly it would be better than some of their translations. But the uh, <laughs> idea, uh, there, there's a theological idea behind uh, the shift, and y you always with the liturgical changes, the argument in the 60s was that we're going to return to a primitive tradition, Christian tradition, just like it was, you know, when our Lord walked the earth and during the first days of the apostles. So it's important to realize that certainly when it comes to the vernacular, as with just about everything else they said about the liturgical changes, that's a lot of baloney. Mm -hmm. it, 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 so... It, it, I'm sorry, go ahead, Father. That, uh, uh, you know, in fact, this principle of absolute intelligibility is a modern idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, when exactly, Father, did the efforts begin uh, to, to sort of, you know, the, the, 
we've talked a lot about in the previous two episodes about these creeping these creeping modernists and how they were patient and they were they were very um, uh, they were very thorough with their plan, but they were patient and slow about it. When did the efforts actually begin to introduce uh, the vernacular into the Latin liturgy? Well, if you talk about uh, after the Protestant revolt. Uh, eventually, I suppose mm. we'll get around to their theological ideas for that. But in the uh, uh, 20th century, the left wing of what we've uh, been talking about in previous shows, the liturgical movement, the left wing of that uh, came uh, started to promote the idea that uh, the liturgy, Catholic liturgy, should go for the most part into the vernacular. And the mm. uh, origin... Uh, for that uh, particular idea, what, what it was is um, it was was sold and pushed on the basis of uh, the essentially this this idea of intelligibility in liturgy that the big guns of the liturgical movement had this idea that um, the whole spirit of the Catholic liturgy was lost, uh, you know, maybe around the year 400. Uh, and uh, intelligibility for the people was lost, and you had to regain that. And that, uh, secondly, the idea was that, well, uh, you have to use the liturgy for pastoral reasons as a means of instruction for the people. So obviously, uh, it has to be in the an intelligible vernacular. So you had the, the, the push for that in the 30s and, and 40s, and especially after the war, and you see this this pickup of momentum uh, on it, where uh, in the International Congress of the Liturgical Conference or the, of the Liturgical Movement in, uh, I believe, in Lugano, in Italy, in the 50s, the um, Jungmann, who was one of the big guns of the liturgical movement, gave this speech and, and talked about how the uh, that Latin was like a, a it was a fog curtain uh, preventing people from understanding the liturgy and that of course became a rallying cry and it appeared even in uh, this idea in uh, Montini's uh, when Cardinal Montini later Paul VI when he wrote a um, uh, wrote a pastoral letter to the people of Milan on the sacred liturgy. He spoke about this this uh, curtain that was preventing understanding. So there is this this development from the 30s onward in the left wing of the liturgical movement. Okay. Well, before we get into the real meat of the matter here in this episode, Father, I, I want to address a couple a uh, couple of things. I want to I want to address a thought that's common amongst trads today that I've heard over the years, and I also want to talk about an argument before we actually talk about the Latin itself. One of the things I've heard uh, several, several times over the years in the traditional movement is the thought that, well, if the Mass had just been translated directly into the vernacular from the Latin and the prayers left unaltered, this would have been okay, this would have been acceptable. Why, Father, is this a flawed assertion? I mean, wouldn't that have been a good compromise? Well, uh, that was a... um sort of a 60s and, and 70s idea, and I remember hearing that myself, people saying that, well, if you had given it a sufficiently uh, sacred type of translation, there would have been nothing wrong with it. But uh, you have to remember that the uh, uh, basis for the shift to the vernacular was uh, uh, essentially a theological shift, trying to make the liturgy man-centered and trying to turn it into an instruction session. 
So that was uh, behind it, and it brought with it uh, all of the um, uh, disadvantages, as it were, uh, of the of, uh, that, uh, or rather, caused the liturgy to to lose uh, many of the uh, aspects of its sacred character and the very reasons why Latin was retained. So uh, it was more than just a question of putting it into a uh, comprehensible uh, language. It was the whole load of theological baggage that went along with it. I want to address an argument here, and this, right. is, this is also one that comes up quite often. But Father, didn't the Roman Church allow the Mass to be said in other tongues in history? You know, the early Christians didn't use Latin. You know, why are you acting like it's such a big deal? The Church has allowed this, so why wouldn't it allow English? Well, the, uh, historically there were certain exceptions that uh, the church uh, did uh, occasionally allow the um, uh, celebration of the uh, Roman rite in a uh, form of, or in a, uh, in a language other than Latin. But the church never actually uh, allowed it in anything, uh, I think maybe with just one or two exceptions in a few local areas, with anything that really resembled the vernacular, that the language always had to be, uh, the language of translations had preferably to be a classical version of uh, the language, a literary version of the language. And in most of those cases, uh, that did not uh, render it intelligible to most of the people. So it, where it was done, it certainly was not done in the uh, way that the modern translations were done. So it's apples and oranges mm. on that point. Well, so now we get into the question about why we actually use Latin. And you write in your book, in Chapter 4, uh, you describe Latin as a, quote, living link to the past, a sign of her continuity and fidelity to tradition, unquote, obviously speaking about the church. And you list five reasons here, and I'd like you to just to maybe just spend a couple of minutes going over these. You list the reasons why we use Latin as stability, safeguarding doctrine, tradition, unity, and sacredness. Could you comment a little bit on those, Father? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, stability, the idea is, is that the meaning of words in uh, Latin does not really change because it is a, uh, it's a language that's not a spoken language, and a spoken uh, vernacular is more uh, subject to um, uh, changes of, of, of shift and of meaning. And, you know, we see that uh, happen in, in English all the time. You know, the, that uh, in the 50s when I was growing up, that pot meant one thing, and that was something that, uh, you know, you cooked soup in. And when you got to the 60s, it mean it was something entirely different. Uh, same, uh, so too with the word gay. I mean, all that meant uh, was happy through the uh, middle, and, uh, middle 60s, but then it came to connote something else. So you have, the, uh, there's this stability, and this stability in and of itself is something that uh, uh, connects you, as it were, with, um, with the past. And so that's a very important uh, feature of it. Uh, as far as uh, one of the other characteristics of the unity. Safeguarding doctrine. Uh, uh, yeah, unity. 
yeah, it, it was a uh, that this language was stable and it uh, uh, maintained the, as it were, the, the visible unity of the church throughout the world. You know, there's there's absolutely no question about that. That no matter where you went, the sacred liturgy was celebrated in uh, Latin, and uh, that was that. And and those who were uh, opposed to Latin um, uh, denigrated that as the the tourist argument. But uh, actually, it's something that's is very important because uh, important because it's a sign of unity in worship and a sign of unity in uh, unity in doctrine as well. And then uh, on the point that you mentioned about uh, safeguarding doctrine, uh, you get the this this uh, the link of Latin in the liturgy. Uh, is to do- different doctrinal truths, and again, you have a stability the way these these expressions are used. Once you get into the vernacular, you can um, manipulate, as it were, the translation sometime, and lose the meaning of um, uh, different uh, doctrinal uh, different doctrinal truths. So that's something that's uh, that is in fact um, uh, very very important. One of the things that uh, you noticed in the 60s is that uh, no one uh, wrote theology in Latin anymore. And the reason no one wrote theology in Latin anymore is because the meanings of uh, terminology, terms in, in Latin, theological terms were very fixed and very stable. And you couldn't get away with the same slipperiness in Latin that you could get away with in the vernacular. Where you know the the meaning of something is like trying to nail jello to the wall, so there was that element um, you know it, it was a um, you know that recommended it, but also the uh, the tradition of the church you know we we talked about the natural conservatism uh, of um, it, when it comes to religious forms you had uh, uh, if you talk about language that the priests uh, celebrating in, in Latin at the altar uh, uses prayers that uh, come, uh, many of them from, say, the time of St. Augustine. And he used the same prayers. So it's this, it's this, this, this link with the past. And two, then you have the, the, the aspect of sacredness of it, that it's something that it's apart from daily life. So it, it gives you the clear um, uh, understanding that what you are doing in mass is something sacred and special. So that's the uh, that's sort of the overview of this. And if there's anything that we can all say about the Novus Ordo is that it is there's not one unifying thing about it. Every Novus Ordo that you possibly can find in your area, each one of them is going to be different. There is no unity in that. Yes, and and uh, of course that's the point. That and that would only be. Um, possible if you had, uh, in addition to all the other loosey-goosey rules they have in the Novus Ordo, um, uh, that was only possible if you had the vernacular. I mean, um, uh, you know, Father Chuck down at uh, St. Teilhard's down the street, I mean, he couldn't, 
um, you know, uh, greet you on, uh, you know, Red's opening day with some spontaneous comments and a couple of jokes, you know, about um, um, who is going to win the day's game and go Reds, uh, you know, if he's forced to uh, improvise in Latin. Something you talk about, too, in this chapter, Father, and I think this is important to hit home on this point as well, is that you say that uh, whenever Latin was dumped for the vernacular in the past, this always pointed to heresy and corruption. And perhaps you could, you could speak a little bit about that, just briefly. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the, uh, that's, the seer- that's the story of the so-called Protestant Reformation when it came to the liturgy, that the, they, uh, the Protestants uh, viewed uh, the liturgy as something intended primarily to instruct men, okay? So you, uh, and to stir up this nice, warm salvation feeling that uh, you're supposed to get. So uh, how can you do that? Well, you can't do that again with, uh, you can't do that with Latin. You have to uh, get to the common man by using the vernacular, okay? So that's, that's um, one point uh, uh, that's extremely important, uh, that, that um, uh, you use this to spread your false doctrine, to give men these, this so-called salvation uh, experience. You do this to break with tradition, uh, you do this to uh, try to uh, make the claim, the false claim, of course, that this returns us to, uh, you know, early uh, Christian tradition. Uh, the uh, and then you get to manipulate the translations. I, I mean, this is historically you find that even in the time of Tertullian, the time of the fathers, uh, that you find people manipulating the translations. And this is something that Luther did when he uh, translated the Bible. You know, to downgrade the idea of uh, sacrificing priesthood, to remove the notion of the sinlessness of Blessed Mother. Uh, the, so so it's, it's, the translations can be manipulated and used as an engine to promote error. So that's the advantage, as it were, to heretics of the use of the vernacular. You can make doctrines disappear. You also describe in this chapter about Latin being a locked-in language, which I think you've eloquently laid out here in uh, this, this first part of the show. Is it fair to say that the, that the driving motive behind getting vernacular into the liturgy was for humanism? That was part of it. That was part of it. And, uh, but it was the, the double, sort of the double-barrel uh, approach of, of uh, modernism and ecumenism. But I think primarily it was the, the modernist conception of the liturgy, and that sort of the, the add-on for that was ecumenism, because uh, all of our uh, separated brethren, uh, they all used the vernacular as well, and now we were going to get closer to them by becoming just like them. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and I'm joined this evening by Father Anthony Chicada. The title of the show is Lost in Translation, so we're talking about the, uh, the removal of Latin from the liturgy and all the forces and ideals that work to make that happen. We want to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. If you are listening to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us ratings and reviews. This helps uh, those who are looking for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our work. So, Father, 
moving into part two here of this, we want to talk a little bit about the document Sacrosanctum Concilium. Now, this is a document that I have had a very difficult time reading over the years because of uh, some of the language that it uses, and, and you certainly see the um, the hatred that some had in this for the old mass, and it's it's, it's a little bit difficult for me to just the stomach even after all these years of having read it. So I was hoping maybe you could give our listeners maybe like a you know a thirty thousand foot view of this document, its language uh, as it specifically relates to the future of Latin as far as liturgical matters are concerned. Okay, well uh, again, so uh, people are reminded of it. This is Sacrosanctum Concilium. It was also called the Constitution of Sacred Liturgy. It was the first document that uh, the Second Vatican Council passed. Um, and um, it was written by Nibali uh, Bugnini, who was, uh, uh, as we mentioned, was uh, one of the, the uh, prime movers uh, and engineers of some of the pre-Vatican II liturgical changes. So um, to uh, get the uh, document passed, uh, it had to be written in such a way that uh, it would uh, appeal to and deceive those um, uh, of the council fathers, those of, of, of the bishops who were against the, um, uh, who were actually in, in, in favor of retaining the uh, traditions of the church and who would have been shocked by too radical a change. And yet it had to leave the opening for a, uh, a uh, some sort of legal opening for uh, instituting the changes that the modernists wanted. So you have this, this on one hand, on the other, uh, type of uh, language in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. So it, it, you ended up with, uh, as it were, lots of weasel words and contradictory uh, contradictory phrases that on one hand would placate the uh, fathers who were not enthusiastic about too much radical change and then uh, at the same time uh, allow that opening. This document uses uh, explicitly unclear language. You talked about you know, the weasel words and some of those words that you, you hear like you know, Latin should have a quote-unquote pride of place and quote-unquote should be kept. I mean, you can go through this document and find all kinds of language like that. These weasel words, I believe, uh, I think it's fair to say, they serve as a mechanism of action for almost all the abuses we know today. And this, this type of language has continued on throughout the years where, I mean, it, it essentially defines nothing. So maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about how those weasel words do serve as the mechanism of action for all these horrors that we see today, but also how this is the language that the modernists use. Well, they, they uh, Pius X pointed out in Pascendi, you know, they, they um, uh, are able very cleverly to use the contradiction to sound Catholic on one page and, and total rationalists on the, um, on the next page. So what you get is, uh, uh, in addition to, you know, pride of place, the Latin should be kept, so you get that on one hand, then uh, on the other you get, well, you know, you have to give a suitable place to the mother tongue. Okay, and parts of the Mass, you know, in the vernacular, it can be of great advantage to the people. Uh, so you put something like that in another paragraph, and then you talk somewhere else about, well, we may need, you know, an even more radical adaptation of, of uh, uh, translations in the liturgy. This may be desirable. 
So uh, what you have is all of this, you have the groundwork uh, essentially laid. And the document is one is that um, the meaning, of, its meaning has been disputed between what we could call conservatives and uh, uh, progressive modernists uh, ever since it came out. But that's how it was uh, designed. So it was, it was the wedge uh, for the destruction of Latin. Well, branching out of this, you know, out of this statement here, there's another there's another train of thought that I've heard throughout the years, and that was, and of course, this is coming from those who call themselves traditionalists, is that the vernacular was was only permitted, uh, that it, that it was never imposed. Um, I hope maybe you could clarify that point that it being that it certainly was imposed. Well, uh, if you look at the you look at the language of the uh, Constitution on the sacred liturgy, it uh, gives you a uh, the opening to impose it, and then who is given the authority to impose it? Well, the bishops' conferences were given authority in liturgical matters, and you can bet they imposed it. That's exactly what happened, and the document. Uh, uh, itself gave them the power to do that and they made the decisions that's one of those things that that uh you know you constantly hear about the misinterpretation of vatican ii and what the fathers yes. intended was really betrayed well i mean you know who who were these these rascally guys who implemented vatican ii well it was the bishops who passed the documents when they were in rome and came home through the dioceses and implemented them so presumably they knew exactly what they were doing <laughs> Right, so we're not talking about permission. We're we're talking about true imposition here. Yeah, the the bishops were are uh, were given the power to be our new legislators uh, uh, by Vatican II when it comes to liturgical matters. Uh, they were given the power, uh, in fact, in later documents to decide the date on which the Novus Ordo would be imposed in uh, different countries, when uh, new translations would become um, obligatory, and so on. So this is, this is the express mm-hmm. will of the Council. So it's sort of a fantasy to say that, that uh, you know, these rascally uh, uh, people who misinterpreted Vatican II and, and who distorted what the fathers of, of Vatican II wanted. The fathers knew what they wanted. Yeah, there's something else too, and I, this is this is one that I hear a lot of, and I'm sure you have throughout the years as well, is that people people tend to want to judge this based upon their understanding of the language of the liturgy. They'll, they'll say things like, "Well, Father, I feel so disconnected with the priest up there whispering and chanting in a language I don't understand." Uh, you know, and you make the point in this book, particularly in this chapter, that uh, intelligibility. Well, you say intelligibility is not the standard for, for, for liturgical text, so that begs the question, what is the standard? I mean, do I have to understand what's going on up there, or is it not about me? And I think that's kind of, maybe, maybe I'm leading you on here, but I think that's, you know, that certainly begs the question. No, that, that, that gets, uh, uh, gets us to a very important issue, that um, when you say intelligibility, uh, first of all, uh, the traditional mass is quite intelligible, but it's 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 not. Um, uh, you don't have to understand each and every um, uh, word and each and every um, 
grammatical expression and construction for uh, you to have uh, a true understanding of it. People, the, the, uh, this idea of the uh, intellectual comprehension of every word is that it's not the point of the Mass. The idea is that it's, we're, through it we're supposed to pray, become united to the church, and lift up our hearts and minds to Almighty God. And so uh, we can do that, and I think there are ten different ways that you can uh, participate, as it were, in, the, uh, in a Mass that's, that's uh, celebrated in Latin. You know, you're going to be a member of the choir and sing part of it. You can follow uh, certain of the texts or all of the texts in your Missal if you want. You can meditate on the Passion when you're looking at the altar. Uh, you can recite the Holy Rosary. Uh, you can follow a book of meditations on the different, uh, uh, different points of the Mass. There are a whole bunch of things that you can do, and each of those, you, you understand it in the sense that you're, you know what's going on, and you're uniting yourself uh, to that. So it's not just this dry uh, intellectual translation exercise. Well, your answer there, it points to a conversation I had the other day with someone who, you know, who attends the Novus Ordo, and, and their objection was, well, you know, I want to pray to God in my own language. Well, to that I would say you can. It's called a missile. <laughs> you, yeah, know, sure. you don't, yeah. it, you know, it has nothing to do with you and, and the priest. Has, you know, if, if you want to pray in your own language, then you know, read the missile. And I think that's a, that's a disconnected argument. Well, well it is, and the thing is that, that you look at something like this. When I was a kid, we sang high mass every day. We knew what was going on. We knew what the glory in Excelsis meant. We knew what the Paternoster uh, meant. I knew that in fourth grade, you know. And uh, we were belting out all these Latin chants, and we, we um, uh, understood. We didn't understand, you know, the Latin grammar, but we knew what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so some of the objections as well to this, and, and I'm sure you've heard this over the years, people will, will always point to the Eastern Rites. They'll say, well, Father, the Eastern Rites, you know, they always use the vernacular. Shouldn't this be an example for us that it can work? Well, I mean, doesn't, you know, doesn't this crack your theory, Father, that the language of liturgy shouldn't change? I mean, yeah, the thing is, though, the, the um, Eastern Rites, this was not, uh, you know, I think we might have mentioned this, universal intelligibility. I mean, people didn't, the, uh, if you have the, the um, uh, um, liturgy in Church Slavonic, you don't speak Church Slavonic in everyday language. Or you don't, in, in say, like classical Armenian, uh, the, the, uh, I think it's the Mectoris in Vienna, it's in classical Armenian. I mean, you don't, um, I don't think you could, uh, whatever you, Armenians do, sell rugs or something in classical Armenian because people wouldn't understand what you're talking about. So um, there was, uh, it's incorrect to say that all of these uh, Eastern rites uh, had absolute intelligibility anyway. And their, their yeah, it's not really the tradition and development was different uh, in any case. And hey, the thing is that, that how many Novus Ordo types would sit through uh, uh, a liturgy, the length and complexity uh, of uh, one of the Eastern uh, Rite masses, uh, the, the Divine Liturgy. Very few, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the, um, 
you know, the fuel, as it were, of actually taking the Latin out of the liturgy. And let's talk about the Concilium a little bit here. They, they issued documents in, in 1964, 65, and 67. And they began, they began to move away from slavist translations of the Latin originals to a more free-form adaptation. And, of course, we certainly hear this today with, you know, ISIL's translations to you know, free-form this and free-form that. It, 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 it's a kind of go-where-the-spirit-takes-you sort of thing, and that's what you get, you know, today. Can you talk a little bit about this progressive freedom of these documents? Yeah, it was a, a very interesting thing to see. Uh, when I did the research for work of human hands, that that you could see a uh, gradual um, loosening of any idea of a um, uh, literal, we could say, or let's say an accurate translation of what was going on in uh, what was going on in the Latin, and. You would. Um, uh, the, the reason I say it was intriguing was because it got to a certain point where, you know, even as a high school seminarian, I knew that that uh, something that was presented as an official translation was really goofy, and, and that uh, you know it didn't really have anything. It, it was a distortion of actually what was in the Latin. But the, so the source of this was actually uh, documents uh, from Concilium that. Um, uh, gradually um, uh, uh, let up on the idea that you had to have uh, real translation. So you get, you know, language like, well, uh, there can be a certain adaptation um, uh, in uh, translations, okay? Or that, uh, well, uh, you know, you should render faithfully this text, uh, but then on the other hand, you shouldn't be uh, too slavish when it comes to exaggerated classical forms. Okay, so that was another thing that he said. And so what happens is it's like Vatican II again, that you're getting these intentionally contradictory uh, bits of uh, legislation. And the idea is that this is a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the uh, people in the National Liturgical Conference bureaucracies throughout the world that uh, you can basically do what you want with the, uh, with the translations. So, uh, so you get over a period of a couple of years, these documents that, that loosen things up, that allow you to adapt, you get the commentators who are writing about this, uh, who, who are on the Roman commissions talking about how you should uh, adapt uh, translations. And then finally you get a, a um, document from Rome itself that basically says that you can make free-form adaptations of what appears in the Latin. And that's exactly what happened. You know, in, in so many, in, in, the, in French, in German, and uh, maybe not so much in Italian, but certainly in English. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now for those of our French listeners, I'm going to butcher this, so I'm going to I'm going certainly to allow Father to correct my poor French. Oh, the, the French case, are very <laughs> forgiving with mispronunciations of their language, especially, especially by Americans. Especially yes, by Americans. especially by Americans. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so at the center of all of this 
is uh, uh, Comme les Prévois of 1969. Mm-hmm. Correct my pronunciation if I'm wrong, but tell us about that as well, Father, because I think this is a this is a keynote to speak about here. Uh, yeah, this was sort of the death blow to accuracy, and this is what produced the whole mess that followed that everyone complained about, Comme les Prévois, uh, and it's, it was an instruction written in French that talked about uh, adapting. Um, uh, your translation. So they say, for instance, the accuracy and value of a translation can only be assessed in terms of the purpose of the communication. Uh, So you have to look at the total context when you translate. It's not sufficient to uh, uh, translate a formula verbatim. Uh, So it it has to become a genuine prayer of the people. So you get all of this this loosey-goosey language, and then they tell you how to... um, uh, they say, well, you can amplify the text a little or paraphrase. And then they give you a, la- a list of Latin terms that they, uh, in effect, forbid you to translate correctly. Uh, so, uh, pius appeared pietas, you know, pious and piety. You can't translate it that way. Or salus, it may mean salvation in a theological sense, or it can also be translated as health for well-being, okay? I'm uh, going to pray for, offer prayers, uh, you know, f- uh, for your eternal well-being. Okay, I guess that's how you do it. Or then uh, superlative adjectives like most blessed or most glorious, those things uh, can be ditched. So there are a whole load of things like this that uh, were uh, allowed to be manipulated in translation. So this, this, this document was, was a license, and then it was this that produced all of these awful, um, crazy translations. In, the, um, uh, in English, let's say in particular, the, uh, there, there are so many things that were particularly bad. One of the things in preparing the book that I looked at was the um, Latin Novus Ordo Missal, and I looked at how the collects were translated from the Latin uh, into uh, the vernacular using this new translation method. And um, if the Latin or- Novus Ordo was bad enough, but the translators, on inst- uh, the basis of this instruction, made it even worse. Uh, in, for instance, what are called the collects and, and uh, um, prayers over the gifts and post-communion prayers for the Sundays in ordinary time. That's the equivalent of, in the traditional Mass of our, our time after Pentecost. The word gratia in Latin, which means grace, uh, appeared 11 times. Not once was it translated in English. So you have, I, hmm. I, I, you know, talk about a loss of grace I mean, uh, really? that was it. it. It simply disappeared. This is the sort of thing that, that Bugnini actually talked about in uh, one of his, his speeches, where he said that, that uh, in translation, the liturgy undergoes a further change and a further enculturation. And that's what they did. They, they pulled out concepts like this. And that would be called sort of like the, the negative theology, right? Well, the, the idea of grace, grace would disappear because it's in, uh, and replaced with stuff like favor. 
which is actually mm-hmm. just what Luther did to the Hail Mary, by the way, but because grace connotes the idea of a supernatural order that is separate from, from the natural order. And the modernists don't like that idea too much of a supernatural order. Uh, thank you. That that uh, you know they're immanentists, and that everything basically has to take place here. So we have to um, uh, make the concepts, the different concepts that are tied in traditionally with a supernatural order disappear. So you know, goodbye, grace. Mm-hmm. All right. I was really I was referring more to it, uh, you write in 1970 that um, negative theology was removed to appease the Protestants and so I'm assuming that that's uh, this is sort of the manifestation of that well yeah also um, you had um, a um, you had uh, um, some elements still of negative theology that continued to um, exist in a few places in the Latin version of the Novus Ordo, and these then could be made to disappear uh, as well in the the uh, vernacular translations. So the the, the, the this went. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are just joining us, we are reaching the end of tonight's broadcast. But before we do, I'd like to remind you that you're listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening I'm being joined by Father Anthony Ciccata, uh, the author of the book Work of Human Hands. And uh, tonight we have been talking about the removal of Latin, the history of Latin, but the, the removal of Latin from uh, the Mass and all the modernist uh, tactics used to do so. But before we, before we wind up this program, Father, I'll hit, hit one more point here. And I think uh, if anybody has uh, logged on and watched your interviews uh, that are available online, they will be very familiar with this argument. And you know, many people will try to defend Paul VI uh, in his views on Latin and say, well, uh, you know, if the Pope only knew, if the Pope only knew, and, and I remember watching an interview, I think it was when you were talking about your, your seminary days, that you, you, know, you even fell into that saying, well, if the Pope only knew, uh, and this is, a, this is a real favorite worn-out war horse, uh, I guess, for uh, those who are either confused or in denial about the nature of who these men were. You know, we hear that constantly, even to this very day. And I think, Father, it only plays second fiddle to, well, what the Holy Father really meant was. So let's go ahead and dispel this nonsense now. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a load of nonsense. And the fact of the matter is the Pope, quote-unquote, did know, just like J.P. II knew, Benedict XVI knew, Mr. Bergoglio knows. And I think this, this kind of harkens to what Bishop Sanborn says all the time, is you know, these men are not stupid. I mean, they, they, you know, they, were, they were raised, well, he might argue that in the case of Bergoglio, but <laughs> the, you know, these, these men were raised in Catholic households. They knew you know, what the church taught. So let's mm-hmm. talk about this for a minute. If only the Pope knew, Father. Well, yes. Well, first of all, you have to. Uh, this was the refrain that you would hear in the Wanderer, and you know that I'd said myself so many times. Uh, you'd find complaints about this in, in say, like Triumph magazine uh, and so on. However, when you actually look at the evidence, a different picture emerges. That you look at what Paul the Sixth said. Um, uh, you know, even before, well, before Vatican II about the vernacular and how the, the rights of the church were an obstacle, you had to have intelligibility. And that uh, uh, finally, uh, you know, his, uh, I mean, his, his, his statements, even after his, um, his election were 
you know, in favor of removing this this uh, uh, this dark cloud, this dark curtain, uh, you know, making the uh, making the liturgy intelligible. So that's what you're working with. Um, when it comes to these translations, uh, the common complaint was that, well, you know, the Pope he doesn't um, uh, really understand English all that well. He doesn't know how the Latin is is uh, being distorted in the translation. There are different studies that were published to show how terrible, uh, you know, this this uh, these translations were. Um, that how they misrepresent what was in the. Um, uh, Latin original, let's say, of the Novus Ordo when it was brought over in English. But then the um, interesting thing uh, that I discovered in the course of uh, researching human hands was in the uh, book, uh, La Reforma Liturgica by Anibale Bugnini, who ta- uh, talked about virtually every aspect of the liturgical reform, and he talked about this, this document on translations, Comme le Prévoir, and he actually was, of course, quite proud of this, the vernacular translations. And he gave the whole story of how uh, this document came about and who wrote it. And, uh, well, lo and behold, it turns out that the text uh, was constantly went back and forth uh, between uh, the authors of this document and, and Paul VI. So Paul VI was involved at, at every... Um, uh, every point for the production of the Comuna Provois, this document that produced all these these uh, terrible translations, and he even um, uh, uh, corrected the page proofs himself. And there's something I think Bonini says something like 69 corrections that uh, on the, the the final version that Paul VI himself initialed um, personally. And uh, he wrote in Italian in the end that uh, uh, something like it's a little uh, bit long, this comme le prévoir, but, um, you know, I think it will serve well, and so it's approved. And then he dated it. He approved it at every step. And uh, the, he, he uh, understood what was being created uh, and uh, approved uh, even even the final page proofs of it. So there's no question that Paul VI didn't know. You know he he was involved. You know it's it's uh, they would all say in Germany, oh if the Führer had only known. Well, uh, in this case also the Führer Paul VI knew and he approved of it. He signed off, mm-hmm. which is called taking ownership. <laughs> so I think so. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would although say he has so. some socialist the, tendencies, so I don't know what what he actually would say about uh, <laughs> what he would say about ownership. <laughs> so the the people who who complain, like Michael Davies, I remember him yammering on about you know that well you can't get the real mass of Paul the Sixth, uh, you know, in the English translation. Well, sorry, the real mass of Paul the Sixth was what you would consider the mistranslated version because he approved all the principles. Right. I, I heard those similar arguments as well. And, uh, you know, and while we're talking about the Pope not knowing, you know, that argument, the Pope not knowing, uh, there was a comment uh, on Paul VI's statement 
about Latin itself, and Paul VI described Latin as a, quote, thick curtain which closes the church off from men, women, children, and everyday affairs, unquote. So, you know, what does that tell you about what the Pope really knew about the Latin being taken out? I mean, I think, that, I think that's sort of, you know, the final nail in the coffin right there for the people who, you know, who think that he didn't know. Precisely, and, and, and uh, you know, you see that consistently. It's, um, uh, thank heaven, because of modern technology and information technology especially, it's a lot easier to find out now what actually went on than, uh, you know, it was when we were going through all these changes. But the, um, you know, all of this, as it were, has come out in the wash. And uh, yeah, so that is... There's so many things that this this is something that you know is, is his attitude is something that was undeniable. This kind of goes back to our first couple of programs, and I think I asked you uh, at the time. I said, well, you know, why weren't you know why weren't people standing up about you know these things that were coming out of Rome? And I, you know, me being my age, you know, my in my early 30s, I take for granted just what you were talking about about you know having access to the internet and literally being able to scan everything that comes out day by day. Whereas you know 50 years ago, that just that was un that was unthought of. I mean, no no one would have been able to do that. So I you know, I think for someone you know, my age, you know, I don't fully appreciate the, the communications barrier that was there for people not to be able to know what exactly was going on until it showed up in their parishes. Uh, yes, and the uh, other consideration there is that there was this wave of uh, legislation, and, and so many things were happening, it was hard to keep things straight. So you had a, a um, uh, you know, this 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 massive um, shift in the Catholic liturgy. All of these documents coming out from Rome and national bishops conferences, and this commission and that commission, and it was something that uh, was overwhelming. Even if you could get the whole, um, uh, if you could have gotten all the material, you know, if if you were on. Uh, you know, say, say the, the uh, mailing list, you know, even if you were a bureaucrat in Washington uh, in the Bishop's Conference, keeping track of it would have been really something. If you look at the, uh, there's a, a resource book called the, the DOL, Documents on the Liturgy, which was prepared by the monks of, of uh, I think the monks of Salem did it. And it's this absolutely massive volume that uh, gives you all of these documents that came out as a part of the official liturgical reform. And to, to, just to figure out what was going on there, still less to get to the bottom of, of the story and find out who produced these changes and what their motives were and their ideas were, that's something that would have been, uh, been impossible. But now, thank heaven, you know, the... the uh, story is is uh, uh, coming out, and we do have this information. All right. So to put a timeline on this, by 1968, uh, Latin was gone, and I, I think it's also safe to say that playing on the words of these documents, you know, the suitable place for the vernacular, as they would say, the suitable place for the vernacular, anywhere Latin appeared virtually. Yeah, you didn't have. Uh, no one used Latin anymore in the mm -hmm. um, in the parishes it was gone and the idea that a choir you know, since I was involved in church music I, I knew this that the uh, idea that a choir would put in a mo put a motet 
sing a motet in Latin on Sunday was inconceivable. Everything was supposed to be in the vernacular. You would find now and then, um, and you know, I tried to find them myself, a, a parish that would use, let's say, some at least some of the old Latin music, but um, it it, uh, it it disappeared. It was done in uh, by the Second Vatican Council. No one. Um, uh, did the music no one did the uh, uh, old or new mass uh, in latin it was uh, considered old church that was over that was pre-vatican II. now it's the people of god and we have this this principle of uh, absolute intelligibility so it was this dramatic shift in just a couple of years that by the time you got to 68 uh, Latin had uh, Latin had gone, and if you proposed that you have anything in the liturgy in Latin, you would be looked at as if you're crazy. I, I was thinking about this uh, as I was going over the the Victime Pascali Laudes, which is the, the sequence that's sung on Easter uh, with our choir. That uh, I remember uh, having an effective fight with uh, the priests at the parish. Uh, where I was organist, to use this one Latin piece on Easter, you know, one of the most famous pieces of, of uh, uh, liturgical music and poetry in existence. And, uh, you know, they didn't want to go for it. And so I had to dig my heels in and fight with them, and eventually I got it. But, you know, it was you were basically regarded as crazy or a crank. <laughs> yeah. The, the um, modernists okay, really so did a job on it. They, they, they um, uh, marched right in and were triumphant on the question of language by 1968, even before the new mass itself was in place. So to put a concluding paragraph here on this whole thing, I think it's important to emphasize to our listeners two points as we close this program out here this evening, is that it was Paul VI and not some ghostly uh, bad translator who doesn't have a face or a name who owns the bad translation of an already bad mm -hmm. liturgy, so-called. Also, the fact that these so-called mistranslations, they are indeed the Novus Ordo Mass. They're not, they're not mistranslations, but they are the intended result by Paul VI. And uh, uh, indeed, that, uh, that is true. It was, it was one package that um, uh, was sold at first in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, and then um, was uh, confirmed by the subsequent Roman decrees that, uh, in effect, promoted distorted translations, and finally, come le provois, which was the, the uh, final shot to the head with the Luger, that um, uh, killed off any notion of accuracy in translation. And it was all the responsibility of uh, the Fuhrer, who knew about it at every point, all the responsibility of Paul VI. Well, Father, that's going to wrap it up here for this show. We're going to be back next month to discuss Chapter 5, the, uh, the Mass as an Assembly. Before we let you go, and hoping you have a happy Easter, uh, we'd like to find out what's going on over at SGG Resources. Well, the latest thing that we have at SGG Resources is we, are, we have available... Easter Lily Memorials. Our church is very beautifully decorated throughout uh, the throughout the Easter season, and these lilies are a part of it. And there's an opportunity to uh, contribute 
to that, uh, as well another opportunity at SGG Resources to enroll loved ones in our Easter Mass Novena beginning on Easter. Most of these Masses are, are um, high Masses that are chanted throughout the octave of uh, Easter, so you can en- enroll someone in that. Um, as well, on the blog part of uh, SGG Resources, you'll see a link to uh, some of my latest articles, one on the question of should Sede Vacantists uh, assist at Masses where uh, the name of uh, Francis Bergoglio is, is put into the canon of the Mass. So the, there's an uh, article there that should be of interest. So as, as uh, usual, there's always something going on at sggresources.org. Do you still have the, uh, the bricks for sale, Father? At the memorial bricks are uh, placed in the walkway of our cloister. We've built a cloister, a monastic cloister walk, and we have uh, uh, memorial uh, bricks with inscriptions that uh, you can get for a small donation to uh, honor someone. And we'll have a uh, we have a mass said for all of these people uh, who've been enrolled in this uh, once a year. It's it's uh, quite nice. They're all all of these little bricks are lined up going toward the fountain in the center. So that is available as well. Wonderful. Well, Father, thanks so much for your time, and uh, we will be talking to you uh, at the end of this month on Francis Watch, big episode on the uh, the canonization, quote-unquote, of uh, JP2 and John 23, and that should be a very interesting show. So we thank Indeed you for your time should. and look forward to talking to you then. So uh, God thanks bless so much, you Father. Thank you Have all a great for night. Listening. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your Catholic faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contribution is the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like to reproduce our work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to mail us at mail at truerestoration.org. For the restoration, I'm Justin Soder. This has been an episode of Work of Human Hands. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.